This is Power Pivot with Leela Sinha. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast where we talk about ethics, leadership, power, and community. We're having these conversations out loud in public because power can corrupt, but it doesn't have to be that way. Today's show may contain references to erotic or sexual subjects, so make your decision about where and how to listen appropriately. Our guest is Rebecca Eggers. Rebecca is the dream midwife and a meditation improv artist, the creator of the Flare Brand Storytelling Method, the author of Coming Alive, Spirituality, Activism, and Living Passionately in the Age of Global Domination, and the creator of Dream Alchemy, the Revelation Story, a breathtakingly beautiful dream realization adventure for advanced seekers who stand ready to seize the power to shine on purpose. She lives in the mountainous highlands of Mexico, where she uses the tools of modern communication to make all kinds of trouble for every last stagnant soul killing an enemy of your potential. Rebecca helps you bring your dreams to life. She is trained as a metaphysical minister, a coactive life coach, a Reiki master, and a tax lawyer. Probably weren't expecting that part. Finally, Rebecca holds a certificate in digital marketing through Emeritus and Columbia University, awarded with distinction in 2017. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. It is a pleasure to have you here. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do beyond what I just read? Yeah. So, uh, I went to the University of Texas School of Law, and then I went to NYU and got a a master's. uh, It's called a, a master's of laws and taxation. And I practiced law in some of the largest law firms and was an M&A tax director in an S&P 500 company uh, until I had sort of a spiritual awakening and I realized that I was on the wrong side of power, uh, that I, I, was, <laughs> you know, like I, I would wake up every morning and go to my corporate job and I would like have this resolution that I was going to have a good day and like by nine o'clock I was just done. So I had this sort of spiritual awakening. Um, and I ended up start. I started going to Chiapas, Mexico, where the Zapatista uprising is still ongoing. And I had sort of an experience with the Zapatistas. It was really, it was really a little embarrassing, actually. Um, I had this crazy idea that I had something to offer them because uh, you know we we learn in in American culture to celebrate our uh, to celebrate our accomplishments and our know how and all of these things and and our colonialist imperialism history. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to change the world, right? And I went to the Zapatista territories, and uh, my friend had gotten me like an audience with the good government board. And all I could do was cry because it was like my first experience of stepping outside of capitalism. And the energy was just so different of being in that community that when I got into the good government board, not only could I really not speak Spanish, which was my first (laughs) ridiculous point. Uh, but all I did was cry. So I was like, oh, my gosh, they must have thought that I was like the crazy crying gringo with nothing much to say who just like wasted their time. But, you know, they they really just that brief encounter was something so different. And that humbling moment when I realized not only did I have nothing to offer them, <laughs> but I didn't even understand my own problem. <laughs> And that was sort of the beginning of the end. I started toggling between my corporate M&A job and um, my Chiapas adventures. And it became sort of a joke around the office. You know, people were kind of like, uh, where are you going this vacation, Rebecca? Egypt? Because this was like when the uprisings were happening in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
I kind of became the butt of jokes. But at the same time, something was happening for me. Something really significant was happening for me. Um, the atmosphere around the office was getting more and more difficult for me to manage because of some changes that the company was going through. And then I was having these moments of going to Chiapas where the suffering that I felt inside was all around me in the environment. Like I didn't suffer from economic poverty, which is a huge part of what's, what's at issue in Chiapas where I live now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I suffered from emotional poverty. Like I was raised in emotional poverty and, and I, I had lots of sexual abuse in my history and, Uh, not by my family, but lots of sexual abuse in my history. And so what happened was between the changes at the company that were becoming very traumatic for me, or they felt very traumatic for me in light of my history, I was also touching my own suffering in a way that was bringing it to the surface. And I should say that one part of that was that my mother was murdered when I was 24. And I had just been like stuffing that and stuffing that and stuffing that. Because oh, I have consequences the, in the long run. Yeah. Like I handled the police investigation for my family. I handled the estate and then I got pregnant. <laughs> so like there was no time to like deal with that. And I never, so all that was starting to come to the surface until I just broke down, mm-hmm. um, broke down. And I was so lucky because I had landed a job where I didn't even know it, but I had really good disability insurance. So all of a sudden I had the chance to get better, to finally take a moment to deal with what was coming to the surface. And it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me that I was kind of forced into. Like I had to document as a lawyer, I had to sort of sit down and document what was wrong with me. And I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, I think maybe I'm not okay. And that Mm -hmm. was kind of the beginning of healing for me. And it coincided with having felt the call to be a midwife to other people's dreams, to kind of help them bring those dreams into manifestation. So all of that was kind of happening at once. Um, Crazy, crazy time. And I did end up getting the help that I needed. And I did end up going on and and moving to Mexico and creating my, my overall brand is called the Passion Path. And it kind of houses everything else. And through that brand, I... I help people really like if we get down to what I do, I help people overcome screwed up power dynamics in their lives because that's what trauma Mm -hmm. is. It's screwed up power dynamics so that they can actually go on to fulfill their potential. So that was kind of a lot, um, but it's a kind of big story, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, it's interesting how whatever your story is, whatever you come from, will be the thing that informs the rest of your life. Like you can't, you know, you were saying you stuffed your mother's murder. Like you can't just shove things aside and be like, yeah, I'm not actually going to deal with that. Um, It will affect you. It'll chase you all over your life until you figure it out. Totally. And, And it's not like I left corporate America and changed those power dynamics. Like I moved to Mexico and immediately moved in with a Moroccan man And I spent the next seven years of my life dealing with the dynamics of living with a man whose ideas about what the balance of power in a relationship should be were not all that different from the balance of power issues that I felt in my corporate life. And I was like, dang, I changed my address and everything. (laughs) So that was when I was really serious. (laughs) Well, you know, I think it's true that so often, not always, but so often, you know, we move our geography because we think it's going to 
allow our problems to stay behind. And, but, you know, wherever you go, there you are. And if you are, in fact, the source of the problem, then it's not going to go away just because you changed your address. So what three things interest you most about power? Um, what three things interest me most about power? I think the first thing that interests me about power is that um, traditional power is completely breaking down. It may not look like that right now, but but I can sort of explain why I see it that way. Um, so that interests me a great deal that I see the traditional bastions of power are just not able to hold the center. Uh, the, actually, there's a title to a book that's about schizophrenia, which is like the center can't hold or something like that. And that's what I see happening now is that like that loss of center is happening in the power institutions of our global world. And it's having stunning repercussions and consequences. Um, so that's thing number one. What The second thing about power that interests me is that uh, most people think that power is something that you either you either exercise collective power over other people or you don't. And I think that is an oversimplification. So I guess what interests me is the fluidity of power itself and what it means in different contexts and, and um, different contexts and, and the different ways that you can use different kinds of power. Like it's not a clean either or distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, thing number three is if you sort out your power dynamics, if you work with, with uh, the power dynamics of trauma versus the power dynamics of healthy relating, I think you sort out your life. So that was three. That's interesting. All right. So I noticed that you brought up trauma in relationship to power a bunch of times. And I think that's probably like its own dissertation. But <laughs> I'd like to go there a little bit because I think it's fascinating. So, so when you think about the ways in which trauma and power interact. I mean, what you said earlier is that trauma is messed up power dynamics. Do you want to tell us like in two sentences or three sentences what you mean by that? Yeah. So all trauma is about holding power over other people or manipulating other people to do what you want them to do. So brute force trauma or brute, brute force power is really hard to maintain. It's it's kind of the hard power that requires a really hard stance and it's really inefficient. So what you often find in trauma is actually kind of soft use of that power through manipulation, control, emotional dynamics that are, um, you know, much easier to maintain over the long run. So you can leave the physical constraints of trauma and still carry with you that kind of soft use of, of, um, of, of traumatic powers, for lack of a better term. And until you sort that stuff out, you just continue to repeat the trauma dynamics, even if you don't have violence or physical violation as a part of the dynamic. So when you talk about trauma in this context, it sounds like you're talking more about um, chronic trauma, the kind of thing that leads to CPTSD rather than a, a single tra traumatic incident like you would see yeah. in kind of a more traditional PTSD diagnosis. 
Yeah, if somebody has a single sort of one-off trauma, but their lives were also were, were otherwise built for resilience, mm-hmm. they have a much simpler, I'm not going to say it's an easier path to recovery, but they have a much simpler path to recovery. But somebody who lives in a traumatic system pretty much from early childhood carries with them such an imprint from that system uh, that that it becomes, you know, kind of like untying the Gordian knot to understand all the facets of it. And one of the biggest facets of it is the way that power mm. is used and misused. So what are some of the good things about power? I think the good things about power, well, one of the good things about power that we're actually losing at this point um, is the ability of, of, you know, people and societies to come together and create what's called institutional power and deploy that institutional power to actually create a positive change. And if you look around the globe, we really don't see a lot of that playing out at this point in history. We see a lot of uh, power being sort of manipulated and institutional power uh, being somewhat under attack, but also used to create outcomes that I think you and I and probably your listeners are not excited about. <laughs> right. And I think that the ability to create institutional power is, is alive and well, but I think the decisions of the power holders um, in terms of what they're doing with that power are, are the real problem. Um, you know, I think that, that I anytime you have a group of people, really? Say more. Yeah. I think that the ability to create and hold institutional power is actually disintegrating. And that's part of, that's what, that's what's at issue here. That um, outliers are, are able to command a, a great deal more attention. Like, like I'll just give you my example. You would think that Donald Trump, for instance, is wielding institutional power to, to achieve something. And in a sense he is, but if you look beyond that to what he's really doing, He's actually like a bomb going off in the middle of the institutions that would normally have constrained him. So he's in many ways using another kind of power, which is on the rise. And that's the power of disruption. The way he's running the presidency is all about disruption. He's bypassed the institutions of the press and basically rendered them almost null and void through 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 you know a more direct approach to communicating with the people and that approach is 100% disruption complete disruption to the way things have been to the institutions themselves revealing the flaws in those institutions like i think a decade or two ago this kind of decentralized approach to the presidency would have failed but at this point in this digital age where more and more people can grab power uh, and wield that power in the airwaves, you're getting outliers who are gaining tremendous power in the marketplace of ideas. See, to me, that is institutional power. It's just not the kind of institutional power we're accustomed to working with. Well, that's interesting. I suppose it's institutional in the sense that Twitter is itself an institution, but it's... it's and society is an institution. And society yeah. is is following different kinds of institutions. I think you're right. I think the traditional bastions of power, I think the traditional structures of power are being disrupted, but I don't think they're being replaced with people who are, I mean, people like Trump are outliers, but they're only outliers when we look at sort of a bell curve of behavioral um, norms. 
right? They're not actually people. I don't believe that people like like Trump are necessarily that far outside of what's what's always been here. I think that they've just been um, marginalized by the traditional institutions, and so they're what they're doing is creating different institutions in which they can um, command more power. And so, I like to me, what we're watching is a shift in which body of people and which body of institutions has the power, but we haven't actually moved away from institutional power. Well, I don't think, I guess you can't really uh, move away entirely from institutional power because like in my book, I actually used a term um, that, that a guy named Walter Wink used just to give credit. Um, he referred to the powers. And so I kind of adopted that in my book. And so anything, anything collective is an institution or a power. Right. right? Uh, and by power, we talk, he's naming the institution, the powers. Uh, so a family is a power and, you know, a Twitter community is a power. And, uh, you know, so, so yeah, your distinction is absolutely correct. But I guess what I was referring to is that the traditional institutions of power that we've always kind of considered to run in the background of our lives, keeping things at a pretty like even keel. Um, I suppose you could say even keel for who, um, but that that's gone now because the dis, the power to disrupt in the traditional bastions of power is like off the charts at this point, which is and happening in industry, which is mm-hmm. also happening in industry, right? Like you know, I live in the Bay Area, and and the kind of word of the day is always disruption. How can we take the traditional ways of doing things and turn them on their heads to create systems that are more efficient, more profitable, whatever? I think that we're in an, I think you're right. We're in an era of disruption. I think disruption is at the, at the heart of so much of what's happening. But I also think that your point of, of, you know, even keel for whom, I mean, it was an even keel, but it was a terrible even keel <laughs> for a lot of people. <laughs> like, yes, you knew what to expect. You knew to expect that you were going to be discriminated against and that you were going to be murdered and that people weren't going to care. And like, so to me, this this era of disruption has an enormous amount of value, but it's also risky because when you disrupt it, you disrupt everything. Yeah, and I actually have a reference for your listeners if they're interested in going deeper in this. This is not my work, nor is this idea that power is dis- disintegrating or traditional forms of power disintegrating, my original idea. So I just want to throw this book out for your sure. listeners. It's called The End of Power. Um, and it says, you know, the title says from boardrooms to battlefields and churches to states, why being in charge isn't what it used to be. And it's all about how this breakdown of traditional institutional powers playing out and the, you know, the, the why and the how and the good and the bad of it. So if people are looking to like have a really in-depth examination of that by someone who like, who really understands power from, from inside some of the of those traditional institutions. Um, I, I, this book was written. I think I read this book eight years ago, and I'm just watching it play out. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And do you have the author there? Um, yeah, Moses name. I want to say maybe I'm not saying that right. Or M O I S E S N A I M. Well, we'll um, we'll try and get that into the show notes so that folks can can find it if they want it. It sounds like a fascinating book. When you think about your personal relationship to power, how 
Does it scare you? Do you embrace it? Like, what's what's your interaction with with having power? Uh, I think that we're entering a time of tremendous chaos, uh, and chaos lends itself uh, to magic, honestly, and to to reconfiguration. So, what I'm finding is that. Uh, my relationship to power and chaos are changing at the same time. And what I mean by that is when faced with the chaos, if we can claim our power to use our, in, our own intentions and our own vision uh, creatively, steadfastly, we can actually move things a great deal more in times of chaos than we can in times of staid institutional power. So I would say that my own personal power to shape my life feels like it's growing and that I've been put into a a lot more robust interaction with chaos and with a lot more vivid understanding of my role in having created the dilemmas of my life and how to sort (laughs) that out. Yeah, I mean, I love I love what you're saying saying here that that you know times of chaos are times of malleability, right? All the structures are already broken down. So if you can maintain a sense of your own power, and I would add, if your power isn't hooked to the institution, right? Yeah, if you're not, yeah, if you're not relying on the institution, right? Because if your power is 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 integrally dependent on the existence of the institution, then the minute the institution starts to crumble or starts to disassemble itself, you're going to find yourself without the power that you're accustomed to having. You're going to, at minimum, you're going to have to learn how to use a different set of tools. Whereas if your power is independent of the institution um, and internally sourced or sourced to magic or something else that's not disintegrating, then then what you'll find is that when when the structures around you become soft, it's very easy for you to change yourself. And it's very easy for you to change those structures around you because they're like putty. Now, if they keep moving and if there are other forces acting on them, then it may be also easy for them to change out of the structure you created. So how do you how do you, if you're affecting a change in your world and not just in yourself, how do you create a change in a time of chaos and then keep it from changing away or do you uh, well i don't i don't i don't think i'm powerful enough to, to to direct the collective um in that way where i can overcome the free will of others i think in that situation you kind of have to think of the free will of groups and how those groups kind of interact with one another and I don't know where things ultimately land. Like, I think we're in a time where, you know, people would like to think that all this upheaval leads to a better outcome in the end and that, you know, in all of the chaos, we can, we can, you know, get to a better place. And I think that's definitely possible, but it's also possible that it can go the other way because I think what you're really describing is a sort of battle of consciousness within the collective so that, so that, you know, there's a shift over here and then there's a shift over there. And then we're just sort of in this um, improvisational dance of power and influence and impact that is very alive and, and hard to predict. You know, I'm working on my 2020 like forecast and what I'm seeing in the early stages of preparing it is that, you know, we're headed into a year where there's going to be 
a lot of chaos. And where we, you know, one of the lines that emerged for me early on in preparing it is that the obstacles will fall like paper tigers. But what does that mean in the collective if the obstacles will fall like paper tigers? For whom and in what way? And I think there's one thing that that in that suggests to me that we may be headed for change that you and I would like <laughs> is that there's a heavy influence from Jupiter. And I relate that back to um, Egyptian astrology where Jupiter is Horus. It's the principle of newness and victory and expansion. So it's kind of like expansion of the newness. Um, so that gives me some hope. But, you know, in general, sort of... Um, sort of speaking about the dynamics overall in the collective. I don't think we can predict wholesale what the what the outcome of the different shifts are going to be. Everyone has, in a sense, almost an equal vote in the way that things go because everyone has um, everyone has the chance to have an impact at this point in history. I mean, that may be true, but I think we also have to look at at the factors that influence how influential people can be. You know, when we look at systemic issues of power and we look at systemic issues of prejudice and, um, you know, the various isms that float around in the world, I think um, claiming that everyone has an equal chance to be influential is is smoothing over some bumps that we simply can't smooth over. I don't I don't think that that's true, actually. I think that we're we're in a, a cultural space where some people have dramatically more influence. And, you know, my last guest <clears throat> and I were talking, Nabilis Reed, we were talking about, about the way in which power is both the freedom to change things in the world around you and the, having the capacity, having the resources you need to make those changes. And I think that resource piece is really important. I I definitely agree with you about the sort of um, the prejudices and the oppression and the things that are are fighting against everyone having the ability to rise to influence. But the ability to build community within oppressed groups is, I think, at an unprecedented place. And I also think that as traditional institutions that have held in place those prejudices and that traditional oppression are in a state of breakdown that more and more we are getting to the place where this, you know, the center can't hold on the oppression for much longer in the way that, that it traditionally has, or at least it can't, it can't continue to be reinforced by the same institutional powers so that we are moving, you know, further and further in the direction of, of more people having more influence. And that's, you know, I I kind of want to offer that as a hopeful perspective on it while recognizing the systemic limitations that are there. I mean, I, my partner is, um, is indigenous. We live in Mexico. There's a great deal of racism about uh, towards the indigenous people. His, his, um, he's from, his family is from San Juan Chimula. Um, there was a, you know, the, there's still a great deal of oppression in of oppression in that group, and he really inspires me because I will tell him all of the things that come out of American activism, and he will be like, "Yeah, but," and he'll give me some like great insight about how powerful he really is, and I'm. I, I want to sort of pass that on that that there are different ways of looking at these things, with the way that they're looked at. Uh, in the United States within that particular framework and the way that they might be looked at in, in other cultures and frameworks are different and maybe a little bit more hopeful. And, and I have to say that, that there is still slavery where we live and, and some of the people from his community are enslaved to this day. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there's still slavery in the United States too. It's not even illegal. So, well, that's you know, I, I've, I've never thought, I guess I'd like to know more about what you're referring to because uh, I'll show, I'll show my ignorance on this point. First of all, I've been gone from the United States for a really long time. So I'm not hundred percent up to date on, on uh, what's coming out on that topic. Well, the, um, the 13th amendment, which theoretically outlaws slavery, in fact says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party oh, shall have been duly convicted. And that loophole is enormous. You can drive you know, a battalion of trucks through it. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. You're referring to the uh, commercial uh, for-profit prison uh, system in the United States. No, actually, any it doesn't have to be for profit. It can be government. That even the yeah. even the, the even the publicly held prisons, not even the private ones, even the publicly held prisons, routinely, essentially, force people to labor for for no compensation and without a choice. So anyway, we're we're in a system where we've been basically sold a bill of goods. We don't. We aren't actually out of the era of slavery. We aren't out, actually out of um, out of the area of forced labor. We're not, and 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 uh, you know, this is that's an interesting question about power, right? Like, how do we, as individuals, take responsibility for the ways in which institutions that we're part of um, are continuing to perpetuate injustice that we know is unjust? You know, we know that that's happening, and the conversation, at least in my circles, tends to be, I'm one person, what can I do? And so then we turn to the collective, and it's like, what can we do collectively? And what we're discovering under this administration, for better or for worse, is that the systems by which we thought we had collective power are actually extremely vulnerable and not particularly well-constructed. You mean the activist institutions or the institutions of government or all? I mean, institute, well, all, but especially the institutions of government. I mean, the activist institutions, to my mind, I mean, I, I came of age in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. And so for me, the activist institutions have never looked particularly effective. I've seen a couple of major things come through, but basically I haven't seen activism as such, really work. And I think that's partially because, and this is going to go to the, the sort of the question of community's role in, in, in um, adjudicating power. You know, I think that's partially because we've entered an era that's so postmodern about our morals and our ethics. Our morals and ethics are so diffuse and in some cases so divergent that we no longer have collective moral power as um, as a system, which is in some ways good because there's some things that shouldn't we shouldn't be you know enforcing on other people and then in other ways I think it's it's weakened all of our systems it's weakened our ability to protest because the government can be like well we don't we don't care what you think and it, <laughs> and it's weakened our ability to transform things like the justice system because um, judges no longer feel like they're accountable to any single moral code either. Well, and then activism is being criminalized. And so you get to the point where activism can become a roadway right into slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, 
or the, you know, right into, um, you know, sort of incarceration for profit, whether it's, you know, private, you know, institutions or public institutions, it's still incarceration for profit in a sense. Um, so there's, yeah, there's definitely all of these reinforcing factors that come together uh, to create a situation where it can feel like we can't move the needle, which is where, you know, I sort of go back and forth between uh, how far can I move the needle around me in my circumstance? And of course, I'm talking mostly about my individual circumstance because I, I don't even I don't even venture into how can I. Uh, with my intentions, change the collective. I, I don't. I think you have to get to a really high level of uh, let's call it magical control before you can start impacting the collective in that way. But how far can I push the needle in my situation? How far can I push my intentions towards what I want uh, externally manifesting, and then coming back to the inside and doing more inner work? And then how far can I move the needle? And and you know, that feels tiny sometimes. It feels such like such a drop in a vast ocean of things that need to shift. And then on other days, it feels like the key to everything that we're moving between influencing externally and doing the change within ourselves. And I, I guess that's sort of all we have is, is to just keep working uh, what we have. I agree with you that, that from my perch, you know, activism has not been particularly effective on the large scale. But uh, I will point to, you know, the, the Zapatistas as an example where they still hold territories in Mexico mm-hmm. and have been able to push back, um, you know, push back the forces that they feel have, have uh, impeded their ability to literally live <laughs> and thrive. They have been able to hold territory and push back those forces and actually build something really hopeful. And so there are these pockets, the Kurds were another, um, we saw what happened to the Kurds. So there are these pockets where, you know, the pushback of, of those intrusions makes space for thriving. And so, so maybe activism hasn't been widely successful, but, uh, if you can have pockets of success where you can create thriving, maybe that is a maybe that is a big enough success success at this point. Maybe that's all we can hope for at this point is to create those pockets of thriving and then begin to attract people and to change the consciousness a little bit at a time. Well, and if that incremental change, I mean, I'm an intensive, right? I like to see change and I like to think in terms of large scale, massive, rapid transformation, but that has its own risks. You know, if you move, if you move two pieces of earth slowly, nobody notices. And if you move two pieces of earth next to each other fast, you have an earthquake. And so I think, so I think that my bias is always toward rapid and, and large scale change, but you're right. I mean, if those incremental changes happen in enough places over enough time, the whole system will eventually shift or at least some yeah, large that portion was, that of the system actually, will shift. Yeah. That was actually the central point of my book was that, you know, we're not going to change what, what I referred to as the domination system. And that's, again, not my term. I got it from uh, Walter Wink, but I liked the term. Uh, and I think it speaks very well to what we're dealing with. So, you know, we're not going to change the domination system by th- hurling ourselves against it. 
Um, we're not going to change the domination system by brute force because actually, if you if you look at the domination system at this point, it, brute force it's on its side, right? It has it has more brute force than any of us, you know, even the militias that are stockpiling weapons are. That's ridiculous in the face of the amount of force that the system itself has. So we're not going to change it by brute force, but but what we can do is to actually start to shift the consciousness. And like you said, you know, in pockets and, and as the critical mass of the consciousness begins to shift and enough of enough people begin to change and what enough people want begins to change, then the whole, the consciousness of the whole system shifts and a domination system by its definition creates winners and losers. And, and when the people who have been cast as the losers, and that's different, right. And at different intersectional points, but as the people cast as losers in any particular moment decide they're not going to play the part of the loser anymore and their consciousness shifts in enough numbers, then the whole system has to break down because the whole thing is constructed on, again, the traumatic use of power only on a vast scale. Right. So in what way, you know, what I'm, one of the things that I've become really interested in recently is, is the ways in which the roles that, that community can play in creating, destroying, shifting power, um, in maintaining, and, and especially in thinking of us, like every one of us holds power. I don't have anybody lined up for this podcast right now who holds no power. So as a power holder, what are our responsibilities and how can the communities that we build around us or gather around us help us be more responsible holders of power? Hmm, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think it probably starts with who's in the community, uh, I think that the people that we're we're intentionally connected to have a huge influence over how we hold power. Because if we're, and again, at this moment, I'm kind of thinking of intimate community, like people who are very close to you. Um, so if we surround ourselves with people who are stuck in the consciousness of domination, uh, one way or the other, then we will be stuck in the consciousness of domination. If we surround ourselves with people who are, uh, you know, still stuck in the traumatic uses of power, and, and of course we are all are to some degree, um, then we too will be stuck in that because when we're surrounded by that dynamic, we, we are in defense mode a lot. We are trying to survive the traumatic use of power on us, right? So I guess community is, in, in the sense that I'm talking about, is about fortification, surrounding ourselves with people who want what we want in the sense of moving beyond these domination hierarchies. And then when we do interact with those who, who are in the domination hierarchy and want, you know, sort of stuck in that place, we have the fortification that community offers us to actually change the way in which we respond to that because it's not all consuming anymore. Say that last bit again. Well, when we're, when we're surrounded by tr the traumatic use of power, 
it's all consuming. When all of our relationships are dominated by that, it's all that we're dealing with. But if we have a community around us that's actually fortifying us, that's actually rooted in, I guess you could say, love or loving dynamics or healthy dynamics, um, dynamics that are about us realizing our potential, then when we do encounter elements of the domination hierarchies, we are empowered to respond differently because those hierarchies no longer consume us. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's like we've stepped little bit and then we can be creative about it right we're we step away from well what happens is that we get ourselves out of out of the water right you know that expression about fish in the water not knowing that they're wet if if we become amphibious then we know that there's a difference between in the water difference between in the water and not in the water yes Exactly. So that those pockets of community that are transforming, uh, that are dedicated to a new way of being, can become the out-of-water experience that then allows us to introduce something new into the collective. So then the question is, how do we find and form those communities? Well, that's interesting. Um I'm going to reflect a little bit on my current relationship in that sense, because I think, you know, when I, when I left the last relationship, there was this sort of lingering error in thought, you know, that, you know, that, that, um, you know, we can do all the work and do all the work, but then we get to this egotistical place where we're like, now I'm leaving and (laughs) goodbye, you know, (laughs) problem. And in the transition, I actually wrote an article about this in the transition, um, you know, the principle that the Navy SEALs put out is that we that we don't rise to the level of our expectations or intentions. We fall to the level of our training. So when I left the last relationship that where I worked out so many of the power dynamics within myself and came to such a deep understanding, and then I put myself in the chaos of moving on, and I and I um made the mistake kind of unconsciously of being like, yeah, that was he was really screwed up, you know. Uh, and it, and and there there were ways in which what he brought to the relationship was, was screwed up. But in retrospect, there were many ways in which what I brought to the relationship was screwed up. So then I get into my current relationship, uh, and and I really think that that without noticing, I had failed to fully self reflect. And so some of those same dynamics started showing up. And you know we've been we've been together a year and a half now, and those dynamics are gone. And, and what changed was actually me being like, okay, I take 100% responsibility for this dynamic that I'm in. And I started really, really um, working on bringing a new dynamic to an old pattern. So, so everything I said in the, in the previous conversation breaks down there a little bit, right? Because we have so much power to shift how our relationships are going so that having the out of water experience as you're, as you're pointing to is one way to get there and creating the out of water experience, just being like doggedly determined that you are going to change how you have always responded to the same old cues 
you know, I, I don't know how to distinguish that between, uh, in terms of what I was doing before versus what I'm doing now, uh, except to say just really doggedly changing the way. Like, I think that sometimes in, in recovery and activism, we go through this phase where we're like, I am woman, hear me roar. I'm not taking this shit anymore, right? And it's, and it's all about this shit that we're not taking anymore. It's and external. Never, it's- yeah, and we never stop to think, who have I been in relation to this shit I've been taking? <laughs> and I think that's the change that happened in our relationship. And I will tell you, I've never been more in love or happier with any person than I am in this relationship. But it sure didn't look that way at the beginning. And, and, and what I had to do was say, who have I always been in this shit I think I'm taking? And change that. So to, to actually get to those communities requires, I believe, either someone who is so adept already at building that kind of community because they've been out of the water long enough, or it requires that you be absolutely innovative So I would say that my last relationship kind of came down to, I'm not taking this shit anymore. I'm done with this shit, right? And this relationship came down to, I love this person so much and I want something so different. How can I be different in what looks like the same shit? Right. And that's what I call Go ahead. Any system system that you change, any system that you seek to change, if you are in the system you and you change, the system will change in some way around you. It may or may not change the way you wanted it to, but it will definitely change because the system can't remain consistent if you if all of its components don't remain consistent. Yeah, which is what makes this moment in history so beautiful because the consistency is breaking down. So the... And and I think that there there are ways in which both of these things are true, right? You know, on the one hand, there's an enormous amount of influence that any one person in a system has. On the other hand, there are definitely, especially when we're looking socio-politically, there are definitely external influences that um, that require collective pushback or that require collective shift. That you know. I can decide that I'm not going to put up with X anymore, but if X is held in place by 400 years of legal precedent, it's going to be really hard for me to shift that by myself. Not impossible necessarily, but it, you know, it, it's really, it's, it's, it's lucky. It's a miracle. It's a one in a million chance, you know, whereas I think, and I think an inter small small scale interpersonal change is somewhat easier in that way. But again, we come back to the power dynamics. Who's holding the power in the situation? Who enters the situation with more power? You know, who can who can even consent? Like what kind what what meaning does consent hold if one person in the in the relationship carries much more power than the other person? Um, you know, how does that how does that shift who we are? How does that shift who we are together? How does that shift how we frame the questions, you know, and how we respond to the answers to those questions. And, you know, when I ask the question of like, how do we form, how do we build, how do we pull that community around us? I, again, like I'm, I'm always intrigued by the ways that especially liberals tend to cast ourselves as people with less power. It's a, it's a perennial culture-wide situation. We tend to believe that we don't have power, that we're the underdog, that we're fighting the man, that we're coming from behind. Like Those narratives are super, super common in liberal communities, in socially liberal spaces, at least in, in like the U.S. and Canada. Um, oh, yeah. and, 
go ahead. I was going to say, like, I've been saying for the whole time, why are we the resistance? Why aren't we the revolution? Like resistance is about battling against forces that are stronger than you are. It can make you stronger as in lifting weights. Um, it can, you can keep the, those things from necessarily advancing as fast, but you can't overturn them in a posture of resistance. And I think that's what you're talking about. It is. Well, and even I would argue revolution says that we are not the power holders. And so we have to effect a revolution. And the problem with revolutions is that you effect a revolution. And then often you don't have anybody who's willing to claim the mantle of power. And so you end up with this chaos for a while. And then eventually somebody emerges, but they may even be reluctant to emerge. Um, or, you may- recreate, or you recreate the same domination-based system of power that, that you were fighting in the first place, because as soon as you're in charge of something, uh, habitual dynamics tend to take over again, pointing to what the Navy SEALs are saying. What is, what is the level of our training in terms of exercising power in a healthy way when suddenly we're thrust into the presidency or, you know, some other seat of power? How do we then exercise power? Do we really have a revolutionary shift in the way that we exercise power? Or do we just replicate the same old, same old, because that's what's familiar. That's what's in our, our subconscious minds. And that's what we go to in times of chaos and, and tumult is what we know. Right. So my question in this moment is what happens if we start understanding ourselves as power holders now? Because we well, I think are. In a sense, yeah, I think that's in a sense what I'm saying. And I'm a li- I admit like I'm a little bit gun shy about saying it because I don't want to over- overlook the institutional barriers that affect different people in different ways. I don't, I don't want to overlook them, but at the same time, I kind of want to tear down their influence in the sense that you're talking about. I kind of want to challenge, uh, how and why those get to be the institutions of power. And we see ourselves as, you know, grasshoppers. Like one of my favorite stories is from the Bible where, you know, the, the, um, the Jewish people are, are looking at the promised land and they see themselves as grasshoppers. And then the next thing is like 40 years of wandering in the desert. Like how many times are we going to see ourselves as grasshoppers and how many times do we need to wander in the desert and what, you know, what are, what's the value of those lessons versus versus if we could just see ourselves as giants today and walk on in. And of course I know that layered within that story is all kinds of its own power dynamics that we could unpack for a million years. But uh, I love that idea of seeing ourselves as grasshoppers and the consequences of seeing ourselves as grasshoppers. And I do think that we have a grasshopper problem on the liberal side for sure. And I also think that in exercising our power, Like we can unpack the institutional barriers to our power over and over and over and over again until we're completely boxed in by them. But I think, you know, but here's what I want to challenge is I think in this system right now, we do hold power and we're afraid to claim it. We're afraid to own it. I agree. We stigmatize power to the point where we're not willing to say that we have power and we're not willing to say that we want power. And I think that that is almost always the downfall. 
that we face is that we're not willing to hold power. We're not willing to follow leaders. We hate to follow. We hate to think of ourselves as followers. Follower is a bad word. Well, let me tell you who who wins elections is people who can all get together and follow somebody. And so I think that I think that when when I look at this, I say, okay, so if I'm a power holder, if I hold power, then I have a responsibility to use it morally, effectively, for the good of the world. That's my value system. That's what I believe about it. And so if I believe that I have power, and if I believe that I have a responsibility to use it morally and effectively, how do I create structures around me that allow me to do that? And one of the things, one of the biggest structures, I think, is community. So how do I gather that community inside and build that community? I've only ever been able to do it on a small scale. That That is, um, and I think that's partially my preference. You know, I, there are a lot of people in sort of my line of work who, you know, want to build um, businesses of scale and they want to have like, massive enrollment in courses and things like that. And I, I find that, at least for me, um, partially for my own personal preferences, but partially for what I've observed in nearly 10 years of doing this work, is that in small spaces, we can create amazing innovation because we can go deeper with one another. And I think that's kind of where we start. Like I, ha- I have a thing called Apocalyptic Passion that I'm running right now, and it's about uh, really reinventing the way we relate to emotion uh, and, and the way we use emotion. And I have like five people in there, and the work is so deep and so rich that it's changing. It's changing those five lives, mm-hmm. but those five lives are like the seeds that go on to like change the dynamics of how people use emotion all around them. So that that's how I see it from you know from my corner of the world. Now there's somebody else out there who's a master at creating that kind of change on a mass scale. The only examples that that I can that come to my mind right now is like um, you know I, I I'm a minister uh, as you read in my bio, so I tend to follow uh, lots of different kinds of spirituality and. Uh, I'm fascinated by the megachurch movement and particular like the megachurch movement when it does seem to actually be affecting transformation. And so I do think it's possible to build these communities and affect this kind of transformation on a huge scale as an observer. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of in that, in those bodies, but wow, those are huge communities that form around values and spirituality and shared purpose and goals and norms, you know, that, so I, I guess, you know, my way is not the only way is what I'm saying, but the depth of the change that I like to create happens on a very small scale. I think small scale, I mean, what you're talking about essentially is a grassroots model, because if you're working with five people and, you know, a million other people are also working with five people, then you've got change, right? You've got, then you've got global change or institutional change. You know, you've got, you've got hope for, hope for planting enough seeds that you actually change the character of the ecosystem. Yeah. Which is, you know, the other part of what I do and honestly, the participants in this course, several, you know, of the, of the ones that are in there, I don't know. 
I'm like blanking, but two or three of them are people that I've actually trained through my branding work. And that's really like a misnomer about it uh, in terms of calling it branding work, because what I really do is take people very deep into the story of transformation that they're offering. And I, I really, you know, push them to a new level of transformation. So I'm really training the people who are training the people kind of thing. And I feel this like responsibility to bring true depth and um, I don't know, like concrete concreteness to the transformation that people are putting out into the marketplace because so much of what's out there sometimes hasn't been thought through very well. Like people are like, oh, I want to do this thing. I'm going to go to this thing. And, and they really haven't, uh, as I had not at the beginning, they really haven't fleshed it out. But in this day and age, in this time, we need deep transformation and we need people who have thought it out and we need those seeds to become seeds, become seeds. And there has to be integrity in that. Integrity is such an interesting place to go because, you know, in obviously you and I are in, in related but slightly different um, parts of the same industry. And, and you know, the work that I do with people, what I, what I find is that, is that intensive specifically are so deeply wedded to integrity. We, we can't really work effectively unless we're in integrity with ourselves uh, and with the work that we're doing. And we're trying to do this transformative work and we're trying to continue to transform ourselves so that we can keep up. Because what happens, of course, is the more you learn and the more you change and the more you grow and the more you discover, the more you have to change and grow in order to remain in consonance with yourself. Yes. And I also think that in, in this work, and, in, and this is individual and collectively, you know, to use a branding term, we open up story gap after story gap. So we come to one place of transformation, and then there's this big question mark that opens up about the next, the next step in the transformation that we yearn to fill. So I haven't taken your assessment, but I would, ge- I would guess that I, you're spot on, that I, I am what you're calling an intensive and, and the more I think about this, the more I realize, like, I've been, I've been struggling forever with this statement on my website that it's for people who are hellbent on happening to history. I think I actually took that from a quote you put up because I was like, yeah. yes, that's it. And then I was like, <laughs> is it really it? Like, does anyone have a burning desire to happen to history? Is this like a primal need? And over this vacation, the, it just hit me finally. I don't want to work with anyone who doesn't have a primal need to happen to history. Right. Like, right. That's a, it's actually a Da Vinci quote that I saw in an exhibit in Denver. Um, and yeah, I mean, people, people who want to happen to history are a particular breed. Um, yeah. And there are a lot of us. And I'm done. I'm done working. I'm done working with, with people who have less than that, like I was questioning, is it normal to have that intense desire? You know, and I find it finally hit me whether it's normal or not. I need to find those people because those are the people who will be in integrity, as you're saying, and who won't rest until they put a fine point on what they're offering into the world. And that means, that means a lot 
of feels. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That means a lot of sitting with yourself and being willing to go through the discomfort. I mean, this conversation is uncomfortable, honestly, but this is the kind of discomfort that we have to go through, right? Like talking about power and our willingness to hold it and the barriers to holding it and how all those things intersect. And it's terrifying to put your ideas out there because another thing we have in the liberal on the liberal side is we're terrified to hold power, but man, do we like to rip a person to shreds, you know? Like, well, we're not like, only terrified we, for ourselves to hold power, we're terrified for anyone else to hold power. And if somebody rises to a position of enough power because they seem to be in integrity and because their ideas seem strong and coherent, then somebody will try and take them off that off uh, out of that position of power and that's one of the ways that we do it like i think discomfort with power is a massive problem in in the social and political politically liberal spaces right now so so is the reality that one wrong move can be the end of you like i'm like i'm i'm a little terrified that i'm going to say the wrong thing that's why i'm a little tentative about even suggesting that we push the envelope on our personal power within the systems of oppression that we deal with because i'm afraid i'm going to say that the wrong way and it's going to sound like i'm dismissing somebody's pain and and definitely i'm not dismissing anybody's pain uh what i'm trying to say is that on the other side of claiming our pain and honoring it and recognizing what we're up against, there's this whole thing that I call the playing field, which is like, you're not in physical danger and you can kind of afford to screw around with the dynamics that you've always responded a certain way to. So this is the change the way I am in this shit and, and, and see how far we can push the dynamic in another direction just by changing who we are in that dynamic but I'm honestly, that's a way of holding power. And I'm honestly afraid to open up that conversation. It may sound like I'm opening it up in an elegant way. Uh, it may sound like I'm opening it up in a courageous way, but I want to throw up while I'm doing it. <laughs> so, and that's why, I mean, you've pointed directly at why this podcast is coming into existence. Because I believe that public conversation, conversations where people step out there's a thing I talk about when I work with my clients about being the sitting duck. Um, and there's a much longer backstory, but the basic idea is somebody's got to go first. Somebody has to be willing to be vulnerable first, because if one person isn't willing to be vulnerable, if one person isn't willing to put themselves out there, then, then the conversation is never going to start, right? If you look at the dating world, if one person isn't willing to say, hey, I like you, there's never a date. Like it doesn't happen. You somebody's got to say, "This is what's true." And so these conversations, the reason that I'm I'm holding these conversations, and the reason that it's related to my work. I mean, how I, I've had a couple of people be like, "Is this a side project?" And I'm like, "No, this is right in the middle of what I do." Because intensives tend to be leaders, and we tend to be people who put ourselves out there, and we tend to be willing, even if it makes us want to throw up. That's not uncommon, but we tend to be willing to put ourselves out there and be the person who says, okay, but we got to talk about this. Okay, but here's what's actually true. Okay, there's an elephant in the middle of the room and it's purple and it's tap dancing. And and when we are willing to be intensives at our very best, we're willing, we're able to get out in the middle of the room and to say that about the purple tap dancing elephant 
And then we can have a conversation, right? There's a whole other conversation once you can admit that there's an elephant. A whole other situation once you know that there's an elephant and you have words for the elephant. I mean, the existence of the word intensives and the whole framework that I created is because I was trying to describe something that we didn't have words for. And it was stigmatized and I didn't think it should be. And so I had to create it because that's how intensives are. That's what we do. So, so when I talk about intensiveness and and power, you know, we put ourselves in positions of power because we often find ourselves marginalized and excluded from positions of power, or we found ourselves in positions of power like you did in institutions that we simply couldn't stomach anymore. So we remove ourselves from there, and then we go start something that fits us better. And then suddenly we are the CEO, we are in charge, we are the man. And and how do we do this differently? How do we create those structures around us that will allow us to not simply reproduce the very thing that we set out to overthrow. Well, and I, I, I have this word rolling around in my head as you're saying all of that, and I don't even have a fully expressed thought about it, but it seems really important, which is the word surrender. People don't think of surrender or even, you know, and I would distinguish between surrender and submission, but surrender and submission are both kinds of power. Um, surrender is, is when we sort of release into something and submission is what we do when we want to have a total experience of something. And I don't, I don't really understand how, but as you were talking about it, those words are kind of rolling around in my mind. And I think it might be that in this dance of vulnerability and in this dance of holding power, there are these moments of surrendering into, and even moments of submitting to, uh, that become part of the dance that allows us to hold power in a different way. And when we shy away from those two words, uh, we shy away from being vulnerable to one another in 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 a, in, a, in key ways. Um, so I think that we avoid recreating those structures of domination by, in a sense, learning the dance of. Um, improvising both holding power and surrendering power um, and, and also considering this power of submission. That's about having a total experience of something. So like giving yourself over to something new uh, emerge from those things emerge for me as keys that I don't fully understand, but they're part of the vulnerability. They're part of the naming of the elephant and even to the surrendering uh, into the reality that the elephant is there and, and finding out what happens when we stop fighting that truth. And from there comes a new authentic kind of power. I, I don't fully understand it. That's a fascinating thing. And I'm imagining that there's a whole body of conversation that one could have about the interaction between, you know, surrender and control and the interaction between, between understanding that you're claiming power by putting yourself out there and understanding that if you put yourself out there um, without a strong sense of your own power, that you can lose your power. I think both of those things are super important and super true. And so when I think about the role that surrender and submission have in this particular kind of claiming – 
I, again, like I keep, this is, this, I started with this as a sort of a seed of an idea, but I just keep circling back to this idea of community because when we're in community that we trust, when we're in community that we have deliberately constructed and fostered to be a trustworthy space, and I won't say safe because it's not always safe, but, but a trustworthy space, then, then we can say, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I had an experience once during my seminary training in a thing called CPE. I had an experience where I put something in the middle. I, I named the elephant in the middle of the room. And in theory, I was in a group of people that should have been able to handle that with grace. And in effect, I was not. And that destroyed my trust, not only in that particular group, in that particular moment, but in the institution as a whole of that particular kind of training. And I have friends now who are supervisors for that kind of training, for C- their CPE supervisors. And, um, and I have a lot of wrestling that I do with them about, you know, how, how do you create a community that is really capable of holding what's true and not just capable of holding the veneer of what's true? So I would love at some point to be able to go much deeper into the question of, of surrender and submission and power and control and all of those things. And of course, you know, some of my guests are, um, are pro-doms or otherwise in the sex worker or sexuality education fields. And I imagine that that might come up again, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I will just add uh, one other thing about that, that that to work with surrender and submission requires a skill set that that involves holding your concept of who you are inside of yourself so that that, um, when people uh, err (laughs) in terms of holding your truth, it doesn't define you. It becomes another place to experience vulnerability. I'm struggling to put it into words, but like where, where somebody else's lapse into abusiveness no longer defines you. And I think that that in some sense has, it has to do with uh, how safe we physically feel, how safe we are in terms of the level playing field of the power, but not entirely like in a sense, you know, Walter Wink, who I quoted in my book, talks about dying out for under the power of the domination system, basically becoming immune to its manipulations. And I think as leaders, we have to get to the place where we are almost like superhuman in our sense of ourselves and the unshakability of that sense. Like in my work, I, I, I offer something called the key and I'll give it away to you now. You normally have to opt in for it, but it's very simple that, that your value is no longer in dispute. And when your value is no longer in dispute, all kinds of questions get answered in a totally new and different way. And all kinds of new behaviors are required. And I think that's the key to the kind of power you're talking about holding is that we know who we are, we know our value, and we can afford to be in the playing field because like, I, I think it's the Osho Zen tarot that says something like, a man of, of Tao, like I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. I'm, I'm from Texas. You're getting Texas Tao. Um, there's nothing to touch, right? There's no wound to touch. Everything has fallen away and there's just pure presence. And I think if we were to give a definition of power today that encompasses everything we've talked about, it's probably pure presence. 
think of pure presence as like the source of the power that can move and change and adjust things without taking on board new wounds mm. and without triggering old ones. Hmm. It's a huge level of personal um, shedding of traumatic impact. Yeah, without taking on new wounds, perhaps, or perhaps simply having confidence in our ability to heal them before they fester, before they get infected. Yeah. Yeah. Because either, I, think, either I, I, think, I think the 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 goal of not being hurt is often a part of the old systems, right? It's a part of patriarchy. It's a part of toxic masculinity. It's like, oh, that didn't hurt me. It doesn't matter. It is only a flesh wound. Like all of that stuff, I think, is actually... I'm I'm challenging that and I'm saying, yeah, it's going to hurt. And you have the tools, you have the tools, right? You have the resources, you can heal it, you can solve it, you can rebuild yourself, you can regrow, you can grow into something better out of it. And so when I go into a space where I'm particularly vulnerable, what I try to carry with me is not invulnerability because that defeats the whole purpose and it doesn't model what I'm hoping for in the interaction and it doesn't generate intimacy. What I do is I go into that space and I say, okay, what happens here? I have community, right? And I'm back at community being important. I have community. I have resources. I have a a place where I can go and heal if I get hurt here. Do I want to get hurt here? No. But if something happens, I know I can I can not only survive it, but I can I can heal from it. And that I won't be that who I am won't be destroyed by that. Well, I think what you're describing is the difference between being hurt and encoding that hurt as sort of PTSD type trauma. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a difference between being injured in the moment and that injury becoming a way of life. And that's what I mean by taking on new ones. Right. Right. And so the, the question is, is, you know, for me, when I, when I hear wound, I hear something that's, you know, an injury. And then the question is what happens? What, what's next? Yes, there was injury because we're living beings. So <laughs> here we are. Yes, there was injury. And, and what, what comes out of that injury? I have to pull us to a close because as is often the case with me, I am fascinated by this conversation and we could really go on forever. Um, so so do you have any last words that you want to share with people about power? Yes. Um, I think it's important for us to realize that by not claiming power, by not exercising power, by not being in power, we are robbing everyone around us of the gifts that our power could bring. We're robbing everyone else of the potent experience they could have if we chose to hold power. We water everything down when we don't hold, when we don't choose to hold power and to take responsibility for how we wield it. So hold your power and take responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. And where can they find you online? Uh, my main website is thepassionpath.vision. 
So pretty simple. The passion path dot vision. The passion path. Yeah. T H E and then passion and then path dot vision as in like what we see. Well, thank you so much. I've been speaking with Rebecca Eggers, who um, can be found at The Passion Path and is the dream midwife. We've been talking about power and community and responsibility and transformation of power. And um, you can you can certainly contact her or you can contact me for more about any of this conversation. Um, I love having these these interviews with folks of all kinds from all walks of life about power and about the ways that power and ethics and leadership and community intersect. If you know somebody who would be a great um, guest on this podcast, please feel free to send them my way. And uh, meanwhile, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Pivot. We'd love to hear from you. Please rate and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support PowerPivot and get early access to new episodes, go to intensivesinstitute.com slash Patreon. For information about coaching and consulting, or to book Leela for a talk or workshop, go to intensivesinstitute.com.